You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On Tuesday, September 7th, Queen's University announced that four of its researchers have been elected to the Royal Society of Canada, one of the highest academic honours for Canadian scholars in arts, humanities, and sciences. Professor Emeritus John Barry has received the honour of fellowship, while Professors Heather Castleden, Karen Lawford, and Sari Van Anders have been elected to the College of New Scholars, Scientists, and Artists. This diverse group has research specialties ranging from Indigenous health policy, cross-cultural psychology, and gender sex research to community and participatory-based research with Indigenous communities. In this next segment, I'm pleased to welcome back to CFRC Dr. Karen Lawford of Gender Studies to chat about her research and her election to the Royal Society of Canada. Hello, Karen. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. So before we launch right into all things Royal Society of Canada, let's hear a little bit more about you and your teaching and research right here at Queen's University. Oh, so thank you for having me. I am very interested in how things work. Um, And I know that a lot of people, you could take that in many directions. And the direction I took that question was how is it that as a registered midwife in Ontario, I was not able to provide midwifery services on reserves. Um, And that led me down a path of understanding or trying to make sense of policy, federal health policy, uh, provincial health policy, um, the legislation related to each of those health um, care systems and how health care providers work or rather don't work on reserves. Because from everybody that I've ever talked to, I mean, I'm not talked to everybody in the world, but definitely a lot of diverse people who live on reserves and indigenous peoples across this country and outside of this country want to have their babies at home in their community. So maybe in a birthing center or at the nursing station or at home, or maybe outside on the land. People want to have their babies where they live, if it's possible. Um, Obviously, there are some situations where it is best to have people leaving their community to receive higher levels of care, such as a cesarean section or multips. So, you know, two or three babies or more or other medical reasons. But for the routine evacuation of everybody who lives in rural and remote communities, Um, to come to say, for example, to Kingston have their babies, that is ridiculous waste of resources, not just on the money aspects, but also of the healthcare providers that work in these settings. That's what I'm interested in. How does this work? Now that I have some understanding, how can we tweak it, make it better so that we have a healthcare system that responds to people where they're at instead of making everyone come south to have their babies, to have dialysis, to have cancer treatment. I don't understand this. Okay, so tell us more about the uh, impact of your work already for healthcare in Indigenous communities and where is it going from here? 
so when I was a baby, baby midwife, so not actually baby, <laughs> I started to ask questions like, well, how is it that all these people come south to have their babies? Oh, that's just the way it's done, Karen. And I'm like, well, that's not real because things don't just happen. Like, um, what just happens? The wind blows. <laughs> I don't know. Or, but there's reasons for this. And I want to know the reasons. So when I first started this, people said, oh, Karen, there's no such thing as a policy, an evacuation policy. That's just the way we do it. I'm like, well, why do we do it then if it's not a policy? So, uh, you know, people didn't have answers. So I started to investigate the origins of this evacuation policy for birth. And it actually, the government of Canada started to be interested in birthing um, on reserves in 1892. So well over a hundred years, almost shortly after Confederation in 1867. So it's not a new phenomenon. It's at the point there well at, where it has become normalized and that's and routine. So there's a process there to make it seem as if it's natural, you know, in scare quotes. It's not natural. It's not normal. Um, it should be a dialogue. So from there, somebody told me it wasn't a policy. So I then um, invented a policy tool to help identify invisible policies. And then I do research with communities, um, mainly with um, First Nations, but also with the National Aboriginal Council Midwives, and hopefully with the Association of Ontario Midwives, to figure out how we can make changes. And I do want to state that, you know, there are some really fantastic nurses, physicians, OBs, who support midwives, but I, I have yet to see a systemic um, display of support by any healthcare profession and perhaps even midwifery itself. Supporting something is not just words. That's tokenized support. We need actual changes in the way that we run maternity care services in this country because we have been in a maternity care crisis for like 30 years and nothing's changing. Services are still becoming centralized and Southern. This is a problem, not just for Indigenous peoples, which we've been experiencing for decades, but now non-Indigenous peoples are having to relocate to cities because um, rural and remote hospitals are closing their birthing centers, like their birthing units. So it used to be you could be born, you could be born and die in the same hospital. In fact, when I worked in Winchester as a student midwife, I would have to go past the palliative care area to go to the birthing unit. And on my way once I had to let the nurse know that someone had died. And that was part of the routine of life within the community. And it was, we all had a role. And I think when we centralize these services, again, mainly in the Southern cities, um, urban cities, in large tertiary care centers like Kingston, like Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, we're actually breaking and tearing up communities and the parts of life that are joyous, we take them away. And I think non-Indigenous people are starting to come to terms with this systemic effect of evacuation for everyone for birth. Wow. Mm -hmm. I have strong feelings about this. Uh, and you, and it's, be, it's this passion. And it's not because, um, like, I don't know everybody in Canada, but I do believe in choice. I do believe in family and community, not just for Indigenous peoples. I know that 
People love to be around the joyous event, most of the times as joyous, of birth. And I want them to have the support and love that they need as they create a family and community. I am so deeply committed to this. I can't think of anything that would stop me. Thank you very much for sharing so much with us. I appreciate it. So let's hear more about the election to the Royal Society of Canada. How did you find out you were nominated and what does this mean moving forward? Well, I do. I did know I was being nominated because there's a part of the form I have to complete um, in terms of moving it forward. Well, the first thing that happened was Pure Later came and they delivered a crown and then I got a sword. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, I was like, really? No, wow. I, really, yeah, I, want, I want a tiara at least. <laughs> but no, I think I was just hanging out with my friends. And we weren't allowed to tell anyone, of course, until this day. So I've known for a little bit, you know, just a little email at night. Oh, congratulations. And I was like, what? I had to, I'm like, did I read that right? So I got my partner to read it. And yeah, it turns out I was accepted. I think for me, uh, and we had talked earlier because I had won an Inspire Award in the category of health, which is the highest award um, that Indigenous peoples give to an Indigenous person in this country. I was also extremely surprised to win that um, because I just go about my work. I mean, there are so many people like me and I don't want anyone who's here to think I think I'm the best I think that we take this opportunity to encourage others excuse me we take these awards to let people know that they're welcome excuse me see I'm nervous again um, and I think that the RSC welcoming me welcoming me into their group actually demonstrates a change of accepting that Indigenous peoples have something to offer this country and that what I have to offer and other Indigenous peoples is excellence. My work um, is about community. It's about the individual. It's about maintaining um, health structures or actually achieving health systems that are actually equitable for everyone. It's not about um, exclusion. It's about inclusion. It's about understanding the diversity of care that actually exists in the country, not just the one monolithic Euro-Canadian biomedical model. We achieve health in so many different ways. Um, some of it's very similar for people, you know, like we go, we go and we look at the sky or we look at grass or we play with our dogs or cats or lizards or whatever it is you have as company. But we all have different ideas of how we achieve health. And I think that is the plurality of health is what brings us to a site of our personal excellence. And I really do believe that if we gave people the opportunity to define and work within their own concepts of health, we would be so much better as a society, as a community. And I just want us all to thrive, except for the white supremacists, if they could change, please. But other than that, um, I'm, I'm really excited about the diversity that I see. I mean, Canada has over 600 different nations in this country that are Indigenous. Look at that diversity there. What are we not knowing as a country in relation to health by constantly oppressing Indigenous knowledges? All right. Anything else to add before we close today, Karen? Um, I do want to thank Queen's University and Mona and Alex 
for helping me apply for the RSC, for, you know, being courage to me. Um, Andrea, you know who you are. You all hold me up high when I feel like it's not even possible to attain. So I'm all so much love to those who support me. I am so pleased to become a member and the colleagues that joined me this year from Queens, they're wonderful as well. And I can't wait to hear them speak. Thank you so much for having me today. And thank you, folks. We have been chatting with Dr. Karen Lawford about her research and her election to the Royal Society of Canada. Thank you, Karen, for joining us here on Campus Beat. And once again, congratulations on your achievement. Thank you. Welcome back to Campus Beat. We just spoke with Dr. Karen Lawford about her election to the Royal Society of Canada. And now we're jumping into another joyful conversation with Dr. Sari Van Anders from the Department of Psychology, who is also elected to the Royal Society of Canada. Welcome, Sari, and congratulations. Thank you so much. So, Sari, tell us a little bit about your research and teaching in the Department of Psychology. Sure. Well, I have four main lines of research. So I, I uh, study gender, sex, and sexual diversity. And I explore those topics and how to conceptualize and measure them, including attention to marginalized gender, sex, and sexual identities, experiences, and existences. I also study sexuality, things like orgasms, porn, pleasure, desire. And then I do social neuroendocrinology. So there I'm looking at how social experiences related to intimacy, gender, and sexuality change our hormones. And in particular, I'm interested in the hormone testosterone. And I'm also interested in how experiences related to holding privilege change our hormones um, and some hormone sexuality associations, especially with desire. And then across all of this, I'm really interested in feminist and queer science. Like how can we do the above research and other kinds of research using feminist and queer lenses that attend to lived experiences, social constructions, and sometimes biological phenomena as well. Thank you so much. Now, what does the workday actually look like? Are you talking to people? Are you doing surveys? Are you in a lab? How does the research get conducted? That's a great question. So I have a big lab. Right now we're working remotely. And um, what we do, so my day is a lot on email, a lot of meetings. So I'm talking to people that way. Um, a lot of the grad students and undergrads in my lab are doing research where they collect data. And sometimes that involves talking with people or even using like chat functions with people or questionnaires using something called Qualtrics. Um, and yeah. All right. Thank you for that uh, that picture. We appreciate it. So now, Sari, what, what really drives your passion for work in areas such as feminist and queer neuroscience or exploring these meeting points of social constructions, norms, and biological bodies? Let's hear more about your passion and inspiration there. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And I teach a bit about this in my course, um, Hormones, Gender, Sex, and Behavior. And there's obviously a lot of biological research and equally, obviously, a lot of feminist research. But these two approaches are often seen as sort of incompatible approaches or almost across the aisle epistemologies. So people don't often learn how to bring them together. I'm really excited about doing biology in non-biologistic ways. And that means ways that attend to biology when relevant, 
but not as like determining things or essentializing things or reducing social behaviors to biology, um, which tend to be sort of more regressive approaches. I'm also excited about the ways we can do feminist and queer work while attending to biological bodies. So sort of bringing that back in. And what drives me is that I think all of this together makes for a better, more empirical, more accurate and more just knowledge. Great, thank you. And now let's learn more about the impact of your research in terms of change efforts in areas of social justice in and outside of academia. What do you think? Yeah, so I have so many answers to this question. I could go on forever. I'm going to give you some. And, you know, if if you need to edit some out for listeners, I get that. Um, I'm pretty enthusiastic about this. So um, one of the things is I've been really excited to see scientists who would have previously rejected lived experiences or qualitative work or attention to EDI, equity, diversity and inclusion and feminist and queer approaches in general end up being like not only open to them, but take them up in their own work. And I don't think that's just the result of my work. A lot of people are making these efforts and there's a long and active and vibrant history and present of feminist science studies and queer science studies and activists involved um, and activist scholars and scholars. Um, But I do do see um, specific terminologies I've provided sort of propagating outwards or models we've developed being of use. So in academia, I see people like not having a knee jerk poo poo reaction to feminist and queer considerations like I used to see, not that they don't happen, but I see them less. And instead I see people including them, which makes for like a more just knowledge, as I said before, or what we might call epistemic justice, like the justice around knowledge, like who's seen in theories, who's included in theories, who has theories that help them make sense of the world themselves and the ways they might be experiencing oppression or privilege. And some of us have access to science where we're in it and some of us don't. So I see my work as trying to change that. Some of the impacts of the work um, are sort of that and then beyond Um, outside academia. I think for people being able to see themselves reflected in, represented in, meaningfully located in our theory, including our academic theory. Like, for example, when you're asked to check a box about your gender, but your gender isn't there or you're asked to indicate your sexuality, but the options presume you have a binary gender sex and the people you're sexually into also have a binary gender sex, but you don't and they don't. Well, that tells people they don't exist, they don't matter and more. Um, And these are people who are already usually, like who are usually already minoritized. And so the science is just further minoritizing them. So people tell us like almost weekly how much they appreciate seeing themselves in our theories and measures and what that means to them. That sense of seeing oneself, I think is something we can underestimate if it happens to us all the time. We also have people tell us about experiences about our research and and the ways that reflects epistemic justice. For example, I have a grad student, Will Beischel, and we're studying gender euphoria and gender pleasure. Um, And someone wrote to tell us how coming into and publicly out with their non-binary identity and existence was euphoric. Um, So much so that people around them were trying to tamp it down. And the person told us how much it meant to them that they had read our papers so they could say and know, no, this is something that many minoritized folks on the basis of gender experience. And it's not just, you know, like something to be worried about, um, whether majoritarian people know about it or not. And then I have another um, grad student who used to be in our lab. We're still working together, um, Sarah Chadwick. And we've done research on this idea of bad orgasms and coerced orgasms. 
And people think of orgasms as like always good. So they're kind of like a stamp of approval. If an orgasm happened, the sex must've been good. Um, but people don't understand they can be coercing others into orgasm or experience coercion. And so this research, like someone wrote to us to tell us how they were finally able to name the phenomenon, which is also part of that epistemic justice um, and kind of giving it form and naming it and then able to act on it and talk to their partner about why, just because there was an orgasm that didn't make what was happening okay. Um, so we see these impacts in people's lives. I have a few more I can go on, but I can also stop there. Wow, what fascinating work you do. Thank you so much for sharing, wow. All right, so let's let's climb into uh, your election to the Royal Society of Canada. So how did you find out and what was your response? Well, I found out over email and it was really excited and Queen's does a lot of work to help with the process and then but you never know how it's going to turn out. So that was really exciting. And then I was delighted to hear the news. And I think one of the things is when you do feminist work or queer work or work with sexuality um, with these kinds of topics, I joke sometimes like you might expect a kick in the ass or trolling or attacks. Um, so to get honors, like it's amazing. And as one of my colleagues wrote when they were writing to congratulate me, um, this they didn't think, and I kind of agree, this might not have happened even a decade ago. So as much as there's so much room for positive change and we need to see that, it's nice to know that work like this can be and is being held up. Awesome, thank you so much. So what's happening next? Where are you going next in your research? Oh my gosh, I have like a million directions. I, I don't know, even know where to start. So I'm gonna, you know, a million directions all at once, basically. So we have so many exciting things going on and I wanna highlight some of the things with students in the lab. So one of them is with grad student and Jusan. We're doing some work on feminist identity, masculinity and femininity and racism and racialization. With grad student Aki Gormazano, we're doing some really excited work on conceptualizing sexual orientation beyond like the traditional ways like lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, and partner number sexuality like polyamory or asexuality, but to actions and experiences across like fantasy and porn and in-person behavior. And then with former postdoc Emily Harris and former grad student Sarah Chadwick I mentioned, we're doing some work on this new theory we've developed called the heteronormativity theory of low sexual desire in women partnered with men and some empirical tests of it. And with new grad student Bianca Wilhelm, we're looking at this sexual configurations theory I've developed, which is like a new way of looking at gender, sex and sexuality, and then plurisexual sexual, uh, sexualities, um, which are um, uh, ones where people are interested in and or being sexual with people of multiple genders. Um, and with also new grad student Sarah Shiverford, we're exploring that sexual configurations theory and not just gender, sex and sexuality, but also cultural experiences. And I have so much more, but I will stop there. Wow, this is huge. So many exciting avenues that you and your students are taking. This is uh, wonderful news. How do we learn more about, uh, about your uh, research and your papers and your books? Where can we find more information? Yeah, so you can go to my website, um, which if you just search up Sari Van Anders in Queens, I think it's one of the first things that comes up. You can also go to academia.edu and get the articles there, many of them. Um, and then if you're interested in that new theory of gender, sex, and sexuality, we have a zine, we have some cartoons, we have the academic articles, we have a workbook, um, and um, some more stuff coming on how you can actually use it and locate yourself and see your own configurations. Um, and that's on my lab webpage. But if you search up Sari Van Anders and then SCT, you'll find it there most likely. Thanks so much. 
Folks, we've been chatting with Sari Van Anders of the Department of Psychology about her research and recent election to the Royal Society of Canada. Congratulations, Sari, and thank you so much for joining us right here on Campus Beat. Awesome. Well, thanks, and honestly, thanks for having me. It's nice to be able to talk about my research. 